I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to scripture and attempt to define and understand it through a lens of life. This week we're in Genesis 33, beginning in verse 18 through the end of chapter 34. And last week we read of Jacob finishing his return to the land of Canaan. He'd been away for 20 years from his home. And his journey home, it revealed to us many things about Jacob. But most significantly, I think, is the encounters that took place on the way home. And the ways that those encounters revealed a complete heart change that had occurred in Jacob while he had been in Haran. That first encounter was the one in which Jacob was falsely accused of wrongdoing. And it was this encounter that required Jacob to rely on his own integrity with his dealings with Laban to act as his defense. The second encounter was the one in which Jacob was actually in the wrong in the relationship and needed that relationship to be mended. And so the defense revealed in this case was one of humility, of doing whatever it took to make it right with his brother. And then snuggled in between these two encounters it was the episode of Jacob wrestling with that messenger from God. And that episode of wrestling is the only time that we saw Jacob himself engage in any kind of violent encounter with anyone. And this instance, it's more symbolic for us than anything else. And the outcome of that encounter with the messenger is that Jacob has his name initially changed. And it is declared that Jacob not only wrestles with God and man, but that he overcomes. He overcomes and his means of doing so is not through violence or retribution. How did he overcome Laban? His integrity. And how did he overcome Esau? He overcame through humility. And it's through that mixture of cunning and humility and integrity and service that he was able to overcome anyone who sought harm to him. Well, all this is about to go out the window because the sons of Jacob, they don't seem to have gotten this message. These young men, they haven't fallen far from that proverbial tree that bore them. You see, these young men, they've learned a lot from Laban and Laban's house and also from their father. And they seem to have taken on that darker nature and the world around them. And in this chapter, we begin to see those brothers exercising that darker nature out into the world. Now, the process that we've spent the last six weeks or so talking about this change of Jacob has gone through to become Israel, it's all starting over again in the brothers. Because this next generation is nowhere near to being ready to be called Israel. They haven't gone through the process of growth that is necessary. They're still operating in the manner of Genesis 8.21, in that the inclination of their hearts is only evil from their youth. And it's this evil that begins once again to perpetuate the cycle of violence. 
Now, the story we're about to read is one that we usually hear of steeped in the understanding that Dina, the sister of the 12 sons of Israel, actually it'd be 11 sons at this point, but that Dina was raped. And when we understand it through this lens, it helps us to temper our disgust at the actions of Shimon and Levi, Simeon and Levi. Uh, but we're going to discover upon a much deeper inspection that that's not necessarily the case. Because this culture that this is occurring in is vastly different from our own. And things that we want to read into the text are not there. We can't lose sight of this. There is an honor-shame dynamic of the ancient Near East that's coming, bursting out of the pages in this chapter. Because honor and shame is central to this story. And it's an examination of this honor-shame dynamic that we'll find that we've read this story before. Now, some of the words of this partial will recall us back to the pattern of temptation in Genesis 3.6. But the event of the story, when we fully examine it, we'll find that this story contains within it the same structure as the story of Noah's vineyard from Genesis 9. So let's read this Parsha, and then we'll take a much deeper look at exactly what's happening here and see if we can learn from it when we try to fit it into the appropriate pattern. Genesis 33:18 through the end of 34. And Yaakov came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the portion of the field where he had pitched his tent from the children of Chamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred kesitah. And he set up an altar there and called it El Erohe Yisrael. And Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Yaakov, went out to see the daughters of the land. And Shechem, the son of Chamor, the Chivite, prince in the land, saw her and took her and lay with her and humbled her. And his being clung to Dina, the daughter of Yaakov. And he loved the girl and spoke kindly to the girl. And Shechem spoke to his father Chamor, saying, Take this girl for me, for a wife. And Yaakov heard that he had defiled Dina, his daughter, and now his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Yaakov kept silent until they came. And Chamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Yaakov to speak with him. And the sons of Yaakov came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very wroth, because he had done a senseless deed in Israel by laying with Yaakov's daughter, which should not be done. But Chamor spoke with them, saying, My son Shechem's being longs for your daughter, Please give her to him for a wife, and intermarry with us. Give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourselves. And dwell with us, and let the land be before you. Dwell and move about in it, and have possessions in it. And Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I give. Ask of me a bride price and gift ever so high, and I give according to what you say to me. But give me the girl for a wife. But the sons of Yaakov answered Shechem and Hamor his father, and spoke with deceit, because he had defiled Dina, their sister. And they said to them, We are not able to do this matter, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. Only on this condition would we agree to you, if you become as we are, to have every male of you circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and take your daughters to us, and we shall dwell with you, and shall become one people. But if you do not listen to us and be circumcised, we shall take our daughter and go. And their words pleased Chamor and Shechem, Chamor's son. And the young man did not delay to do this, because he delighted in Yaakov's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. And Chamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us, so let them dwell in the land to move about in it, and see the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters for us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. 
Only on this condition would the men agree to dwell with us, to be one of the people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Their herds and their possessions and all their beasts, should they not be ours? Only let us agree with them and let them dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. And it came to be on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Yaakov, Shimon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and went out. And the sons of Yaakov came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered all that was in the houses. And Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me a stench among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I am few in number. They shall gather themselves against me and shall strike me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a whore? Wow, so that story can be pretty brutal. Uh, we don't, we don't understand it like we should. We like to think that we are guilt innocent society and that, uh, honor shame has been in some way expunged from the world or that it is some way inferior than our own worldview. And as we've talked before, there are honor shame cultures that still exist in our world. We've all heard of a woman who was raped and then killed by a brother or a father because of the shame that she brought upon her family by being a victim. And our stomachs turn at the barbarity of such an idea. And yet, in an honor-shame culture, shame must be expunged or it will hang over your head for the rest of eternity. It's the right thing in these cultures to kill the victim because of the inherent shame the victim now has. And it's easier to kill the victim than it is to kill the perpetrator. So it's easy for us to get on our high tower and look down our noses at societies such as these. But all too often when we do so, we ignore the plank in our own eyes. Because we act this way, we act like this in our own society. We believe and we think we are primarily guilt-innocence-based society. And we believe that we've left behind the vestiges of honor-shame dynamics, but we haven't. So let's look at the specifics of this story, then compare it to the story of Genesis 9, and discover the base pattern in question. And then from there, we can extrapolate that pattern through both of these stories and into our own lives. So at the end of chapter 33, it really doesn't contain a whole lot except to reveal that Jacob was following the same path from Haran to Canaan as Avraham followed when he first came to the land. In Genesis 12, it was Shechem where Avraham first arrived, and it was Shechem where Avraham built his first altar to Hashem. And it's here in this final verse of chapter 33 that we see Jacob build an altar to God for the very first time. He's never built an altar before now. It's only now that he builds an altar. And he calls the place the God of Israel is God. When Jacob arrives in Shechem, he purchases some land and he pitches a tent and he begins to settle down. And then in chapter 34 is when things begin to get interesting. Now, I've said it before, we often hear the story of Dina and Shechem called the Rape of Dina. Woe to our prejudices for this, because our cultural prejudice misses the point once again. In verse 1, Dina goes out to see the daughters of the land. 
And here, once again, we catch a glimpse of the social dynamic that's completely foreign to us. In the ancient Near East, a young girl was not to go anywhere by herself. Her honor and her virginity, those were a thing that was fiercely protected by the family, especially the father of the house, because it was the father's job to ensure that his daughter was pure in order to make a good marriage for her, in order to find her an honorable husband. It was for her own good, because without her virginity, the chances of an honorable marriage were slim to none. The best providers and husbands would be looking for a girl that was pure, and his honor, the honor of the husband, depended on her being pure. It was only a prostitute who would sleep with a man outside of marriage and gain honor from it. And usually, prostitutes in the ancient Near East were connected to temple worship in one way or another. And they were the only ones who could gain honor by sleeping with men besides their husband, even though there was a double standard where men could usually sleep with other women. So in the ancient Near East, a respectable woman would not simply wander away from the protection of her family. Witnesses were required to vouch for her purity, as even a simple accusation of wrongdoing could ruin a girl's chances at securing a beneficial match in the future. In most translations of this chapter, it states that Shechem saw Dina and he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. How awful this is to our ears. He seized her. He humiliated her. These words in English, they're violent. And when coupled with laying with her, we get this picture of a man forcing himself onto a girl. But we miss in this English translation that there's a bit of translator bias here. As the word seized is the word yekach. And it's the very same word used to describe what Lechem, Avraham, Nahor, and a host of others do when they take a wife for themselves. It's only here in this story that it's then translated as seized. It's not a violent word. It doesn't have to be a violent word. We've turned it into something violent. Shechem here took Dina to be his wife before anyone else knew. He didn't rape her in the traditional sense that she was unwilling, but he did humble her, not humiliate. Those words mean the same thing, but in our Western culture, humiliation is something much different than humbling. He humbled her, and it's the same word used, translated as humble all throughout Scripture. So he did bring shame upon her, and not only upon her, but then to her family as well through extension. He took her honor from her so that she would be unable to find a suitable match in the future, except for Shechem. He's the only one now who could possibly desire her for a wife. No other respectable or honorable man would want her now. Now, the word usually translated as humiliated, as I spoke before, is the word anah, and it simply means to humble a person. And if we're ignorant of the honor-shame dynamic going on here, we disconnect that, and we turn it into a violent action, and then a humiliation that comes upon her, rather than a willful act by both parties, and then a shame or humility that's then placed upon them. It's as if Dina and Shechem, they decided to elope and they consummated a marriage without the input of their respective families. This doesn't seem so bad by our standards, except for she, and by extension her family, were shamed by not giving them a say. Dina was, in fact, disrespecting and dishonoring her own father by doing this. But as we read, Shechem loved her. He treated her kindly. 
he desired to marry her. Not simply gratify himself on her, and taking it upon himself to seduce and for all intents and purposes marry her without the knowledge of any of the parents, he removed the right of the parents to refuse the match. Now in our culture today, we would have very little problem with this arrangement. No, they love each other. Let them marry. So what if they got the cart before the horse in the bedroom? We'll just look the other way, and as long as they make it right, it's okay. Now the shame in this matter simply doesn't translate into our culture because we have a completely different set of morality. Our views on family, kinship, and sexuality are completely different. So why did Jacob stay silent at this? I've heard it said that he was being weak and not standing up for his daughter in the face of her rapists. He won't defend her. What a deadbeat, unloving father. But if it wasn't a rape, maybe he's not what we've been imposing upon him. Jacob knows that, yes, he has been shamed by his daughter, and he has been shamed by Shechem, but his hands are essentially tied, because she's happy, and he's a decent match. In fact, it's stated later that he is the most honored person in the city. And the fact is, is that he loves her, and he's willing to make it right, even if it is after the fact. Besides, Jacob now has no other option for Dina. She's been defiled, and she has no more honor to bestow upon another husband. So Jacob here, he's not being weak. He's being wise. He's being cunning. He is looking for a way through this situation. He was just blessed with a new name. He had overcome man before through nonviolence. There's a way through this without killing. No one's been actively harmed up to this point. No one is hurt except for a bit of honor, a bit of pride. And last week we read of Jacob's realization before God that he deserved ultimate humility and even death before the face of God. And it's imbued him with the humility before others. I mean, who is he to act rashly and to defend his honor when he had just humbled himself willingly before Esau? And so he waits. And Hamor comes, Shechem's father, and he asks for Dina's hand in marriage for his son. He wants to make the situation right as well. The fathers are working together to fix a bad situation. They understand those foolish kids and their adolescent exuberance. They've made a mess of things, but we can fix this. We can move on, and perhaps we can even come to a mutually beneficial arrangement. Hamor recognizes he knows his son has brought shame on Jacob, and so he offers any price for Dina, no matter how large it is. She's been defiled, and technically, she's not a desirable match anymore. But Jacob's sons, though, when they return, they feel the shame. This is their sister, their blood, and her shame is their shame. And it seems as though this, the text is calling out the sons of Leah especially, as feeling extra shame, as if Jacob simply doesn't care for them. I mean, Dina, she's a daughter of Leah. And he's not responding in the way that they think that he should. And they are described as being grieved and angry. And for the first time in verse 7 of this chapter, the name Israel is given to the entire family. This is a thing that should not be done in Israel. He has done a Navalah thing in Israel. And what is a Navalah in Hebrew? It's a disgraceful folly. Now, Hamor understands. He knows that they're angry. In fact, he probably expected the anger, 
And so he makes an offer that should cover the shame. He says, I'll pay you whatever you ask. Name the price that will make this right. Join yourselves to us and let us become one people. You can become as a native of this land, as one of us. Let our honor be your honor and let your shame be our shame. Dwell in this land, move about, take possessions. We're willing to join ourselves to you. And in this way, in this way, we can overcome the shame that we've caused. Now, if we look to the Torah, what Hamor is doing here is he's acting according to Torah. In Exodus 22, 16 through 17, it says that when a man entices a maiden who is not engaged and he lies with her, he shall certainly pay the bride price for her to be his wife. And if her father absolutely refuses to give him to her, he pays according to the bride price of maidens. If Jacob agrees, Hamor pays the bride price. If Jacob disagrees, Hamor still pays the bride price. But Hamor is offering the bride price and whatever else they want. But Jacob's sons, though, they've learned from their father, they've learned from their uncle, and so they respond with deceit. Now, this word, contrary to the last few types of deceit that Jacob has engaged in, that were more along the lines of cunning or trickery, the word for this type of deceit is mirma, and it means treachery or fraud. Why do they act this way? Well, because he had defiled Dina, Tameh. That's a word that we'll see a lot in Leviticus, but it means that he, he had made Dina unclean or impure. So how did they deceive? Well, they invite the people of Shechem into the covenant. They agree to join themselves to Shechem if Shechem will join themselves to the covenant of Abraham. In essence, if they'll convert. And they did this knowing that it would weaken the men and make them vulnerable. They offered the covenant without intending to follow through on the covenant. Now, for Shechem and Hamor, this is agreeable. So they take this to the rest of their people. And it says that Shechem was more honored than any of the people in the city. He had the most honor of them all, and he gladly accepted the act of circumcision. But the people, they've got to be persuaded. And so this is the first part of this negotiation. They become circumcised themselves. They go through with it first. The second part of this persuasion of the judges of Shechem is found in the form of a plea. And this plea is along the lines of these people, being Jacob's family, they're at peace with us, so let's let's remain at peace with them. We don't want war. We don't need them coming at us and attacking us. They've agreed to join themselves to us. But in order for this to happen, we have to become like them as well. But if we do this, we gain their possessions and their beasts, and they will be added to our numbers. And it's with these two things, the plea and the example of the leadership, that the elders agree. And three days later, the trap is sprung. Anyone who's been through a serious injury, surgery, whatever, they know that the third day is the worst pain that you're going to experience throughout the entire ordeal. Well, the men of Shechem, they're at the worst part of their pain in a very sensitive area. And so Simeon and Levi, they take their swords and they attack the city and they kill everyone in it. For the sake of the honor of their sister and for the sake of the honor of their house, they destroy a city and take all of their belongings. They take their women, their children, become captives, become slaves in the household of Simeon and Levi. Jacob, Jacob's obviously upset by this. 
and he gets mad at them, but he doesn't get mad at them for the morality of what they did. It seems as if in some way he agrees, at least tacitly, with their actions. He feels that shame, but he held himself back. And so when he gets onto them, it's not, what have you done? You've done evil. But rather it's, what have you done? You've made us a stench in the eyes of the neighbors. I have become a stench among the inhabitants of the land. We're few in number, and they're going to come and destroy us now because of what you did. The morality of the action is not at play here in his dressing down. The existential threat that they have created and the shame that they have increased through this. It's as if he's saying, we were shameful before the people of Shechem before, and rightly so. But now we are shameful before all of the inhabitants of this land. But God protects them. As we're going to read in the upcoming chapter, God protects them by putting his fear into their neighbors. But they respond and they say, so what? Should we allow them to treat our sister as a prostitute, as someone who gains honor by engaging in sex outside of covenant? Should we have simply allowed this offense to go and remain unpunished? They have shamed us. Again, there's no moral reason for them to take this drastic action, according to our modern sensibilities. We say, so what? The kids had sex before marriage. So what? They were going to get married anyway, right? And even that's an old idea. Our modern society would say, so what? And even if they don't ever get married, who cares? They're just out experiencing, being kids, doing what kids do. Now you see the problem that many have simply allowing this chapter to be a mutual seduction. Because as soon as we turn this into a willing event between parties, it becomes way more morally ambiguous and it becomes downright evil what Simeon and Levi do. But when we paint Shechem as a lustful animal who forced his way on Dinah, then we can at least say, well, they were defending their sister from a rapist, from a predator, and we can't allow it. Did they, did they kind of go over too far? Oh, okay, maybe they went too far in killing the whole city. But Shechem at least deserves some sort of justice. But when we look at the story and we see them destroy an entire town simply for the sake of honor and honor alone, well, now we have a problem. Because now, Simeon and Levi, they're really bad dudes. They have committed wholesale slaughter because their sister was unable to wait, unable to control herself. Suddenly, we're not even sure if we're tacitly okay with what they did. And so what can we learn from this? Is the moral of the story, don't go around killing cities, especially when your reason is that kids will be kids? Is the lesson something along the lines of don't let your sister out of your sight because someone might seduce her and you might be forced to pick up a sword against them? Is the lesson something along the lines of don't use the sign of the covenant as a means of deception in order to weaken others so that they'll become easy prey? Well, that one may actually have something to it. But I think, I think that the real power in this Parsha it comes into play when we consider this story in parallel to the story of Noah and the vineyard. So what was it that happened in the story of Noah at the vineyard? Uh, let's do a little bit of review. Noah got drunk, right? He ended up naked in his tent. 
Now, Noah did nothing morally wrong, but he did end up in a shameful position, just as Dina and Shechem did here. Now, the problem arose here not when Noah got naked in his tent. The problem arose when his son witnesses that shame. And even the witnessing of the shame isn't an evil event. It's when his son decided to then share the shame of his father to his brothers. Now, those brothers in this in the situation of Noah, they ended up covering up the shame of their father with, without partaking in it or without making his shame worse. And then Noah ended up cursing the one who brought on the shame, not just him, his entire line. So what is it that happens in this story? Well, Dina, and through Dina, Jacob, finds himself in a position of shame through an act of impropriety, also involving nakedness. This shame was a shame that was shared with their brothers. And the brothers, they attempted to cover the shame of their father and their sister. So far, so good. But this time, rather than covering the shame in a way that didn't incur further shame, in their pursuit of the return of honor, they ended up adding to their father's shame. They piled it on deeper and deeper. And in the end, the line of the ones who initiated this increased shame, they're cursed by being cut off, not from the family, but being cut off from being any possibility of being the leader when the time comes. Now, honor and shame is such a difficult topic for us because we want to believe that we don't operate as honor and shame people. And yet we do. Our society is one that's grounded in guilt and innocence, but we still as a people operate on honor and shame principles. Have you ever been embarrassed? Because of this embarrassment, have you ever wished to get back at the one who embarrassed you? Well, embarrassment is shame. And getting back is a way of stealing honor from your opponent in the moment and bringing them shame instead. Have you ever been offended by what another person has done to you? Well, offense is a shame reaction, and offending is a shaming reaction. Have you ever told a story about another person who was caught in a compromising position? Well, you have shared the shame of another as Ham did to his brothers. Who has called another a name or been called a name by another? Have you ever read or purchased tabloid or celebrity gossip magazine? Have you ever watched a reality TV show? Have you ever watched one of the many humor channels on TV or on YouTube, such as Fail Army or America's Funniest Home Videos? These are the enjoyment of the shame of others. It's humor for us. It's funny for us to see people at a moment of weakness. And these, these shows, their purpose is to share the shame of another so that we can all laugh at their shame. In fact, much of our modern humor is based on shame. Pratfalls, name-calling, even nudity has become acceptable as humor in our modern world. And each one of these is exploiting the shame of an individual because they help us to deal with our own shame by getting us to focus on someone whose shame is greater than our own. Even our political discourse has entered into a realm of shaming those we disagree with. Declarations of racism, the name-your-position-phobe, patriarchy, even the supposedly recent revelations about Trump, it doesn't matter when they are, there's always new revelations coming out about him. They're all attempts to pile up shame upon the opposing side. 
while at the same time, the truly shameful things of perverse sexuality, abortion, greed, slander, gossip, these are praised and they're lauded as respectable and even desirable. Now, we may not be in a primarily honor and shame society. We may not even be a primarily honor and shame motivated people. But we are still honor shame people. It is a language that we inherently understand. Honor and shame is a great part of who we are as humans. We're not as advanced and as far removed from this as we like to think that we are. Because we understand shame way better than we let on. Now, I mentioned before that when we see the stories that mirror each other, there's a theme that undergirds the various narratives that we need to pay attention to. And in this case, the theme is not simply honor and shame. That's the setting. The theme is how do you deal with shame? Now, each time we see this theme discussed in scripture, the theme is addressing something new, a new slant or a new angle is given to the story to help to develop another aspect of it. So when we're here talking about honor and shame back in Genesis 9 with Noah in the vineyard, what was the problem there? Where did the conflict arise? It was found in Ham sharing his father's shame with his brothers and his brothers then covering the shame of their father. Now, the various ways of dealing with this shame in the moment, Ham's method was to gain honor through the publication of his father's shame. Shem and Yefet's method was to protect their father's shame through privacy without increasing it. Here in Genesis 34, how is the story morphing the idea of dealing with shame? Well, the issue here is not the shame being shared with those who have no need of knowing it. Hamor himself shares the shame with Jacob and his sons. He comes to them. The shame is known. No matter what they did, it was known. It was out there. The issue here is covering over the shame of another. For Ham and Yefet, they didn't add to their father's shame. They turned their faces away from his nakedness as they covered it. For Simeon and Levi, if we put them in the story of Noah, they would have beat up and killed Ham for looking at their father. They would have gotten even with him. Rather than allowing a curse to come upon Ham, they would have destroyed Ham and his entire household. Jacob was attempting to cover the shame. He was attempting to come to an agreement that would benefit all even his offended sons, and especially his daughter, because Shechem was an honorable man. Sure, he took liberties, but he was attempting to make it right. His children would have to marry someone, and it would likely be people from the land. If Jacob settled among them, then they had something going for them at least. Jacob was seeking to keep the peace that he was beginning to foster with the inhabitants of Canaan. Temper, temper, though. The temper of the two boys changed everything. They didn't want the shame simply covered over. They wanted it reversed in full immediately with change left over. They wanted to not just get even. They wanted to come out on top and to prevent any further shame. They took vengeance into their own hands, and rather than allowing God to have his way with the people of Shechem, the fact is that most of our temper and anger towards others, it arrives from a sense of being shamed, of feeling like we're not being treated as we feel that we should be. Whether that feeling of disrespect comes from an employer, co-workers, associates, parents, children, spouses, or even strangers. 
the thought enters our head that they aren't treating me in the manner that I deserve and that I expect. I am entitled to respect. I'm entitled to honor simply because I exist, because of who I am. I deserve more, whether that be more money, more responsibility, more power, or more respect. All of those things are simply a way of saying, I deserve more honor. And when we don't get it, we react in anger at the one who's shaming us. And we justify it by saying, well, Ephesians 4 says, be angry and sin not. See, right there, righteous anger is allowable. And my anger is righteous anger. Why? Well, simply based on the fact that I'm the one feeling the anger. I don't need to question my anger. I don't need to subdue my anger. I can wallow in it. I can beat it because it's mine. It's justified. And we all love to quote Ephesians 4.26 because it gives us that toehold of respectability to our anger. But none of us wants to quote or even remember that James 1.20 exists. James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Man's anger doesn't work God's righteousness. We're all to be, as James said in the previous verse, in verse 19. So then, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to wrath. Simeon and Levi, they were not swift to hear or to understand their opponent. They were swift to speak, and in speaking they deceived their opponent in order to weaken him. Then they were swift to anger, and they allowed it to fuel a murderous and genocidal rampage. And in their anger, not only did they not work God's righteousness, they worked a great evil in killing a city that didn't deserve it. For a thing as intangible and meaningless as a feeling of offense. Now take a moment. Consider your own life. When you feel anger, is it rising from a righteous source or is it simply an honor based response? I have been disrespected. Now I must destroy you and make sure you know how little you are in my opinion. I must even kill you so that I can regain my own sense of self-worth. And when the dust settles, not only have you destroyed another person, but you then feel the shame of the harm that you caused as you look at the rubble of your relationships that's left around you. Even worse, as others look in on the rubble of your relationships. But we, those who are saved, those who are of Yeshua, we're supposed to be Israel. And is this the response of the person Israel? No. The response of the person Israel is to work to come to an amicable and mutually beneficial arrangement, to accept the shame, to cover it over, and to work going forward. We have to consider, we must always consider, is this how we ourselves wish to be treated? If you were to accidentally cause shame on another person, do you want them to get angry with you? Do you want them to get even with you? Do you want them to engage in destroying you? Now, last time in Genesis 9, we saw that gossip and storytelling is grounded in shame. But this time we see that anger and the desire to get back, that vengeance, is grounded in anger, which is also rooted in shame. We are very much shame-based creatures. And what's the cure to this? Well, the cure is the Messiah. It's the Torah. 
It's allowing our shame to be cast upon our Savior. Who for this of honor despised shame? The world tried to shame him, and in their attempt to shame him, they enthroned him over all. And so this is our model. Take the shame. Accept it. And this is what Yeshua tells us in Matthew 5, verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is that get even mentality. But I say to you, do not resist the wicked. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, if you're being slapped on your right cheek, it's by someone's left hand. That's a shaming gesture. That's not someone intending to do violence to you. It's someone shaming you. Turn the other to him also. And he who wishes to sue you and take away your inner garment, the only reason someone would take the inner garment without taking the outer is in an attempt to bring shame upon the person. Let them have that outer garment as well. And whoever compares you to go one mile, go two with him. When people attempt to shame you, take it, bear it. You, as a child of God, you are bigger than any shame. Be Jacob, be Israel, and seek to make peace with those who have shamed you. Don't be Simeon and Levi, who attempted to return shame for shame, and in the end they gathered all of that shame for themselves, and they were kept from the honor that could have been. Now, these two, they could have been in line to be the heir of Jacob, but because of this event and possibly others that we're not told about, they're skipped over when Jacob gives his blessing to his sons in Genesis 49. Their anger did not work the righteousness of God. It worked only to make Israel a stench in the nostril of the nations. And this, this is one of our biggest issues in the Torah observant movement. Because it's commonplace for us to get upset, to get angry, to get frustrated. Frustration is also a form of anger. When others don't keep the commands as they should, or when others don't keep the commands in the same way I do. I too, I've gotten upset when people just won't see the light. How can they not understand just how simple our way is? Then someone does something that I disagree with and we say, well, this thing should not be done in Israel. And we are allow our anger over their sin to become our sin. But we have to be bigger than that. Jacob, Israel, he held his tongue. Israel sought peace. He sought to find an amicable solution to the problem. Would this solution have been perfect? No, there would have still been a remainder of shame. There's no perfect solution sometimes. Sometimes you seek the path that brings peace, and that means accepting that an offense has occurred. I have been hurt, you can say, but let's move on from here. Jacob was ready to forgive his offender. His sons were ready to get even. Now, this is our choice. We can allow the offense to eat at us. We can wallow in our shame or, alternatively, in our guilt. We can take our offense to the offender or the offendee and seek to find a way to restore relationship. Will it be perfect? No. But it will be much better than anger, betrayal, deception, or even murder. Jacob, as we've seen, we've seen that he has grown, and he truly is taking on the role of Israel here in the text. But his kids, though. What are you going to do about those kids? Because those kids, they have a lot to learn. And we, we as seeds of Jacob, 
we too, we have a lot to learn. And so the cycle of growth moves from the generation of Jacob to the generation of his sons. And in two chapters, that's where we're going to start. And that's where we are today. Humanity, society, we're reaping the result of so much shame and anger and vengeance and sin, all of it compiled and compounding upon each other. And there's only one solution. Accept the shame. Allow the anger of others to settle on you. For the sake of peace, for the sake of life, allowing it to happen, knowing that you're more than that. You don't have to defend yourself. God will defend you. Vengeance is his, not yours. So allow it to be his. And recognize your life as a believer is going to be one steeped in shame. That's all there is to it. You will be shamed by the world. You will be shamed by those around you. Part of seeking life is accepting that shame. God give us the strength to do so. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we Seek Life. Shalom.